Hello and welcome to another episode of Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Rees from Instinctive Partners in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today, we welcome a very special guest to the Instinctive Studio. Alex Cole joins us, I'm delighted to say, who has had a storied career leading corporate affairs and corporate communications for such titans of the business world as Booper, Sainsbury's and Cadbury Schweppes and now leads the Ithaca Centre for Corporate Affairs Leadership. Alex, thanks for your time today and for coming into the studio. Thanks so much, Damien. Gosh, who is that person you're describing? It's you. <laughs> it really is. And also joining me today is my instinctive co-host and colleague, Jeremy Durant, our chief media strategist and our head of risk and crisis. Jeremy, good to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Damien. Uh, pleasure to be finally making my, my pod debut and uh, really looking forward to the conversation with Alex and uh, hearing her insight and perhaps a, a few war stories along the way. Mm, okay. Alex, Spin Unspun is all about leaders and leadership in corporate affairs and corporate communications. In a nutshell, tell us what the Ithaca Centre is all about. Uh, well, uh, it's about a year and a half old, um, so still relatively new. But something I set up um, post my time as Corporate Affairs Director in the places that you mentioned, partly because I had always sort of felt like um, the corporate affairian profession didn't really have anybody who was thinking about us in terms of learning and development. Uh, and so we are all about corporate affairs directors in particular, um, sometimes a bit of a lonely job, um, supporting them, providing them with uh, a kind of place of counsel, but also a place where they can learn from each other and also their teams, because, um, you know, corporate affairs is one of those professions where actually if you can have a function where everybody is seeing themselves as a corporate affairian, then you as a function are going to have a much better impact for your organisation. So that's what we're all about. I noticed in one of your in one of your posts online, you describe corporate affairs as a profession that is ill-defined and often underestimated. Yeah, I think so. I mean, part of doing it well, actually, is sometimes that you're kind of a bit behind the scenes, you know, you can, you know, perhaps sometimes form a bit of glue within an organisation. And actually, when you get in front of it too much, um, sometimes that undercuts what you're actually trying to get the organisation to do. Um, it's also relatively immature. So, um, you know, many teams still find themselves being described, you know, as the press office, dare I say. Um, I'm sure we'll debate, you know, communications Surely versus not. corporate affairs. Um, you know, a bit like the HR function kind of went from being personnel to HR and now is called the people function. I'm really, really passionate about people sort of seeing us for the totality of what we bring, a strategic partner, um, in terms of corporate affairs versus, if you like, one of the tactics, which is communications. Got it. So just talk a bit about your own career, for, uh, for instance, and, and maybe how, wh how what you learnt in your career shaped yeah. perhaps what your thinking is now. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, like most of us, I definitely didn't 
you know, sort of have a childhood ambition to be a corporate really? affairs <laughs> director, <laughs> um, would not have known what that was. It definitely wouldn't have been one of the things that, you know, any careers advisor would yeah. have been able to um, point to. So in that respect, um, actually, I think it is a bit better defined these days. And, and mm. certainly I'm part of an, an initiative that does look to sort of try and um, you know, get people thinking about corporate affairs a, a, a bit earlier yes, on in their careers as a profession. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of started in the world of politics. Um, I worked um, before the 90, you know, and on the 97 general election, um, worked for Jack Straw, um, actually kind of went into the world of business as much thinking, I don't want to be one of those people who's worked in politics, who's never, um, you know, sort of done a proper job. Um, made the transition into agency, started up an agency, was part of a team that sort of saw the opportunity of a comms agency, a, com a public affairs agency public that was yep. a sort of change of government. Actually, um, you know, what many people are sort of starting to think about right now, that yeah. transition uh, time being an opportunity. Um, and then from there went into one of my clients thinking I was just going to get client experience for a couple of years and then I'd probably go back either to public affairs and, and working in government mm. or public affairs working in agency or a, a kind of broader agency mix. Um, and it was kind of a shock to the system for me to, to realise that um, things that I had done when I was working for a politician where I had needed to think about the internal stakeholder management to get policies through. I had needed to think about, um, you know, sort of selling that to a leadership population within the within the Labour Party. I'd also needed to think about the end consumer, if you like, the general public, the stakeholders, um, and obviously the media as one of the mechanisms. Actually, it was go it was through going into agency and then in house that I really realised, gosh, there's a whole bunch of people who only do one of those jobs, whereas in opposition there were like three of us, um, and we definitely had to, you know, give every aspect of that yeah. um, a go. So it was a great kind of stomping ground. So I went from um, I went from ASBS, which was the agency. Um, that then became part of Mandate, and then I moved into um, to Cadbury. So that was my that was my kind of opening of eyes and seeing what yeah. a corporate environment looked like. And at that point, I suddenly thought, "Gosh, I should have done a graduate training program." I've now got all of this catching up to do in terms of some of the things that you see people who are in an in-house environment have generally uh, kind of been exposed to. Having started in politics, is that something you can ever shake? I mean, is that fundamentally where your passion lies still or not? Um, I think so. Um, I, th I think I would generally describe myself as someone who is a campaigner. And so when I kind of started out with my career, I think I thought politics was a way to bring about change. Um, as I went into the world of corporate affairs and in the in-house environment in particular, I realized just how much you can change when you're inside an organization. And I quite often, when I'm talking to younger people about it as a career, I do say, we've given ourselves quite a sort of safe and boring sounding name, corporate affairs. 
do not let that put you off because actually by working in corporate affairs, actually you can affect huge amounts of change within an organization. Um, I'm also aware that it does it's not a transition that has suited everyone. I've seen some people who it really didn't suit it. And I do think you have to, if you like, kind of buy the corporate message of, of the thing that you're working in. So working in an organization where you don't, you know, believe in what the organization is fundamentally about, um, whilst at the same time sort of seeing it as a great environment where you can help the organization be the best it can be and do the, do the most that it, it can is, is kind of how I think about it. Um, I wanted to ask about very interested in some of the major issues that you faced in, in that in-house role. But before we get into that, when you first start these these big roles, is it quite helpful to have a big crisis early on or a big something for you to get your teeth into and, and demonstrate not only your personal value to the organisation, but actually promote the, the function as well and, and how it can have value? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a function that does well in crisis. You know, it suddenly becomes very clear to people who maybe previously have, you know, kind of questioned why they might need the function, um, that the function is is valued. And and I certainly have always been somebody who kind of slightly thrives in that environment. Um, you know, when I've talked to people about their careers, most people, if you ask them to think about a kind of seminal moment in their career, will point to a crisis where they got an opportunity to kind of stretch outside of boundaries, um, you know, their advice and their counsel was listened to perhaps in a in a different way. Um, so I think it generally is helpful. Um, it's there's also, a, I think, a bit of a distinction between a crisis, which is a, a kind of crisis for the for the world and a crisis for the organisation as well. So, um, you know, kind of COVID was a was clearly a crisis for the world. Um, and it required slightly different skills from corporate affairs people because, you know, the entire organization needed to be involved in that. Their skills of, of networking were being called on, their skills of public affairs were being called on as much as their skills of, of kind of media management. Skills, crises that are, are much more about, um, you know, a kind of problem with the organization will generally require you to to need to kind of dig into the organization a bit more. You're managing the external, but really where you can have your biggest impact is internally. And I was really interested by your comment there, that's quite a lonely job. Um, and obviously, I guess what you're doing now is trying to kind of connect people who are in that role. When you were in that role, you know, were you swapping notes with, with other equivalents or peers? Yeah, well, I think that was kind of part of the issue was I would have a group of people, but they generally were people that I'd built sort of reasonably strong relationships with largely by having worked with them. And I probably didn't call on them as much as I I, I perhaps should have. And it, you know, sometimes we're, we're very good at networking, but you kind of go to a, you know, an event, have a glass of white wine with a room of 200 people, like how, you know, you might collect lots of cards, but really do you kind of get under the surface? Um, and so one of the things that I'm really passionate about is actually helping people have a place where they can really talk things through in, you know, in, in a real way, um, and be connected to people that um, you know that will be able to give them useful advice and 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 managing competitive pressures and and even the kind of you know the kind of competition that we all feel when we're in a room with with peers 
um, to sort of actually get get kind of real with each other. Um, it, it when you're trying to make a case for something internally. Um, other parts of the organization, I think, are sometimes much better at um, being able to call on evidence and examples from, from other organizations. And, and, and by definition, I think the corporate affairs director is often coming at things from a slightly different way than the, the rest of the exco or the organization. And so being able to call on that extra capital. Now, clearly, agencies play a big role for this as well. So I would probably have, you know, lent on my agencies to to do some of that as well. But the inter- particularly the management of the internal dynamic is something that I think you can, you know, really get in a different way from from somebody who is is perhaps also dealing with a, a CEO. So can reassure your CEO that other CEOs are, are are kind of thinking about this and would expect something to be managed in this way. Are you able to talk us through perhaps some of those or just a couple of those crisis examples that you, you did have to deal with and, and perhaps the learnings you took from them and, and how you perhaps apply that to your, your, your conversations today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a long list, actually. <laughs> I realise <laughs> so when I stop and think about it. So probably there was a kind of early seminal one for me at Cadbury, which was Cadbury had sort of found itself in the headlights of uh, a kind of um, childhood obesity storm, you know, being hauled in front of a parliamentary select committee to account for a marketing initiative uh, that had been done, everything through to COVID at, at, at Bupa, global data breach, um, and and um, horse meat in Sainsbury's, and you know, all kinds of other um, of, of other things along the way, but. I do quite often go back to that experience uh, kind of early on um, because it was for me at that time, I was not the corporate affairs director um, working for, for, for Cadbury when this, this issue arrived. I'd actually stepped outside of corporate affairs even and was working in innovation because I had you know, had this realization that I needed to improve my commercial skills. So, I'd actually worked quite hard to get the organization to trust me, to give me uh, something with a, um, a kind of pure commercial aim. And then this storm blew up. And actually, the, my learning was that sometimes the thing that you think is the right thing for your career, the investment that I was making in commerciality, um, actually, when the organization needs you, you should be ready to kind of drop that and step back. Um, and so I ended up kind of going back to, to help in quite an intensive way, um, the preparation for that. Um, and then, you know, they then rewarded me by actually giving me an even better um, commercial job um, on, on the outset of it. But it is that learning around, actually, it's in crisis that you see the people who step up. It's in crisis you see the people who step back. It's in crisis that you see the people who say, this is what my job is, and I'm doing what my job is. And those that say this is a no job description environment, this is about getting what needs to be done, um, done. And it also is an amazing opportunity because suddenly all the conversations that we generally have about resources and time and access 
all fall away and suddenly you know I was spending you know vast amounts of my time with somebody who previously I might have got to see you know maybe mm. once every couple of months or so and it and that person became a, a huge sponsor for me um, and I and I know that I got the corporate affairs director job further down the line pretty young with not really enough experience because many people in the organization had seen what I had done mm. um, in that in that particular crisis so so do you think boards and executive boards and PLC boards, do you think finally they've got it? They understand corporate affairs and reputation and the value. I mean, companies constantly tell me that uh, uh, reputation is their most valuable asset. And it's, it's, it's pretty uneven, to use your phrase, as to how much they invest in that yeah. amazingly important asset. And it's surprising how many really just ignore it. Uh, but... Uh, over the time that you've been involved in this profession, would you say that boards finally are getting it? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, it is light years ahead. I mean, I was I was lucky. I worked at Cadbury, which mm. had a very long and strong track record in valuing reputation, and in fact was one of the first organisations to set up a um, what was called a CSR committee at the time uh, would now be called an, an ESG committee one of the first to do reporting and I was I was kind of part of uh, of setting that up um, but I think increasingly you know it's it's kind of documented for boards that this is one of the questions one of the debates that they should have um, I think for CEOs as well increasingly they kind of get that um, you know I always sort of say like when something goes wrong in the corporate affairs space, it is one of the areas where it tends to be the CEO that gets the bullet, yes. not the corporate affairs director. Whereas actually, if you have a, you know, a, a breakdown in your technology or something goes wrong commercially, there's always somebody else around the exco who yes. actually, you know, stands in front yeah. of that. So, um, you know, for any CEO who's ever wavering, you know, that is always my kind of <laughs> my kind of guidance. <laughs> think about yourself. <laughs> actually, if if you were only thinking Enlighten about one self thing, interest. Yeah. enlightened self-interest. Yeah. And certainly one of the CEOs that I worked with who was a, a, um, a kind of first ever CEO, um, he did eventually sort of say to me, actually, of all the things that I was expected to do when I moved up to being CEO, it was actually your area that was the area where I felt most naked and hmm. I needed the most um, upskilling because, of course, most CEOs have have got the job because of their grip on commercials and their, you know, their vision for what they want the business to do. Most of them have led large groups of people. So, you know, the kind of internal leadership piece, if you like, and, and leading leaders is something that they will have experience of. The world of corporate affairs and seeing the lens through that end of the telescope is often something that they really do need a bit more thought um, to, to think about how they, they broaden, that, uh, broaden that out. So, yeah, unsurprisingly, I'm a, 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 a wholehearted advocate for um, both boards and CEOs, and indeed not just the CEO, but other members of the Exco, yeah. um, really sort of seeing that, that the corporate affairs director has a contribution that they can make to those, those kinds of conversations. You talked about obviously integration being important, and um, that's the role that you know that conductor role that you talked about. But presumably, the flip side of 
where things go wrong is where it becomes siloed and, and compartmentalized. Are you, are you seeing that where organizations today still have a marketing director, they have an internal comms, they have a public affairs, they have a media person, but no one really leading or bringing it all together? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there are certainly um, those organizations. And in fact, when I, when I was at Sainsbury's, I was called corporate affairs director, but I didn't necessarily have all aspects of the corporate affairs agenda reporting to me. And actually, I reported into marketing as well. And, um, you know, my advice to people in that position is always, um, in, in a way, ignore the, you know, ignore the org chart and, and just focus on what the agenda is because there is no perfect world. And actually, the most important thing is, can you get those people who have a stake in the corporate affairs agenda of your organization in a room together aligned around a strategy, sharing information easily, having each other's backs quite often on something so that, you know, one part of the organization is not causing another, um, you know, a problem somewhere else that they just haven't haven't thought of. And so, um, you know, obviously the ideal is that it's the organization you know, kind of reflects that agenda. But there's also a, a reality, it, you know, in any organization that the the org, the organization never gives you exactly what, what you want for a particular issue. And if you're, whether it's a, a positive issue or, or, or a, um, that you're trying to promote or a negative issue that you're trying to solve, you will generally need to be involving people outside of the corporate affairs function in that anyway. You know, if you want to tackle something like, I don't know, the, you know, get ahead of an issue with payment terms, then you're going to need to get the procurement team into your conversation. You can't just have that conversation outside of it. If you want to shift the dial on the diversity and inclusion agenda, you know, you're going to need every leader in the organization and to think about culture and you're definitely going to need to be working with your people team or your HR colleagues um, in a particular way and I think that is where corporate variants come into their own is any organization of size has an issue with silos can you operate across silos and get things done and get people lined up around what needs to be done rather than who they report to or as to say, what your what your job description is. Um, you've created the, the ethical leadership frame. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what was the work that went into it and, and what are some of the outputs? Of yeah. It? So, um, as you said, Damien, I, you know, one of the issues I saw with the profession was that we didn't really have a, a sort of standard. And so we would sometimes be, you know, given uh, generic leadership um frames and attributes and and I saw that sometimes that they didn't really sort of feel like they actually fit with um, what we were trying to to bring to an organization so in my uh, in each of the places that I had worked I'd worked with the function to come up with our view of of what leadership looked like and our our capabilities as I went into Ithaca and we set up the center I probably had you know interview conversations with um, about 200 people and it's probably been about 300 um, in total since um, since the centre was set up. I also worked with four business psychologists who you know were experts in leadership 
but that I could work with in a focused way to sort of bring their knowledge of leadership and my knowledge and the wider Ithaca search businesses knowledge of of what CEOs and CPOs were looking for from corporate affairs and actually triangulate all of that and say, right, okay, what are the attributes that make um, somebody very successful? Now, sometimes when I show it to people, it sort of slightly blows their mind as they think, God, am I really meant to be able to do all of those things? And I guess there is no such thing as the perfect corporate affairian and I definitely have my weak areas. So we'd not say I, I can live up to everything that's that's on the page. But we've got 10 attributes across three parts. Um, the first part is the core, you know, what you would expect, really your ability to synthesize um, across the different discipline areas of, of corporate affairs, your ability to bring strategy and operational excellence and your ability to lead people. So those are kind of four core areas. Um, above all of that is, is this commerciality that I keep coming back to. So your ability to connect with the business and what it is about and how it makes things happen. Um, but also your ability to bring challenge to that in a constructive way and your ability to also not just seek change or implement the change of others but actually deliver change as well and then underneath it all and I think this in 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 a way this kind of third dimension is in some ways I think the kind of the richest area is the kind of personal qualities and um the kind of self-reflection that you might need to do to sort of think about the kind of how you turn up. Um, and again, many people in corporate affairs have come from the world of politics or media or agency, environments where they perhaps have not been exposed to the kind of development thinking that somebody who's done an MBA or been, um, you know, through uh, through a big company leadership program would, would have done. So, those three qualities are driven purpose. That's the kind of level of ambition and resilience that you bring, your kind of courage of convictions, if you like. Um, intellectual agility, you know, you need to be smart and you need to be smart in perhaps a slightly different way than a finance director needs to be. A finance director needs to be really smart about numbers and very good at analysing them. A corporate affairs director needs to be very good at understanding what a finance director is worrying about and thinking about and know enough about the the numbers to be able to go toe to toe to them. But they also need to know about what a secretary of state might think, what, you know, the, the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus thinks, what a media journalist would think, what the frontline thinks. So they actually need to take often quite contrasting points of view that can be in conflict with one another and hold that tension and be able to bring clarity um, from that ambiguity. And then the third dimension is EQ. So, you know, um, your, your own knowledge of yourself, your knowledge of other people, your ability to, uh, you know, to bring influencing uh, to bear all rests on um, having really, really well developed EQ. And at the Ithaca Centre, 
can you actively or do you actively help and train and develop people in those areas? Yeah, yeah. So you could help me with my EQ, for instance. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and I, I mean, there's lots of <laughs> there's lots that you could right. do to help yourself as well, right? You know, I mean, there's plenty of of kind of books out there. But what we um, what we have found people enjoy about the leadership frame is that it becomes um, a point for for self reflection. We we do workshops with teams or work with individuals where they might sort of stop and think about where they feel like they've got a strength, where they've got a stretch area, how they might develop it. Um, and I also find that it can be it can be really helpful to think about how much time you spend on a particular part of of the leadership frame as well. And this was Claire Mortimer, who was uh, at Lloyd's, who kind of came up with this. And I think it's a really good analysis because you might think you're quite good at something, but then in your day-to-day working environment, you're perhaps not really spending enough time on it. So one of my weak weak spots is the operational spot. So, um, you know, I like to think I'm good at it when I get to it, but actually I you know, often was under prioritizing it. And so knowing it's a stretch for me was made it something that I I knew I had to sort of consciously both spend time in it myself, but also consciously value members of my team who had strengths in that area. And how does the the Ithaca Center fit together with Ithaca's search? Yeah, so arm, which is quite a well known Yeah, so I mean Alex Gordon Shoot and the Ithaca um, search team, I think, probably have done more than anybody else to advance the the cause of corporate affairs. I think she's probably persuaded more mm-hmm. CEOs to put it on the Exco and to make it a kind of wholehearted brief um, than anybody else. And so um, I have known Alex probably for about 15 years as in the olden days as a candidate and um, she was somebody who reached out to me when she saw that I was leaving Bupa and um, I had decided I didn't want to go back in-house I wanted to do something a bit different and the idea of the Ithaca Centre kind of emerged from that now at the same time being um, you know we're, we're both within the same company but but what's also really important is that um both what she does in search and what I do in capability development, it's really important for people to feel like the information doesn't necessarily flow across. You know, there are conversations that you have with somebody when you're in a search that you definitely don't want the wide world to know about. And similarly, if you're talking about your own development or the development of your team or talent in your team, you don't necessarily want that flowing back. So I think we've managed to um, manage that in the right way, which is obviously, um, she has been an amazing um, place of counsel for me, source of insight. And also, you know, she knew far more corporate affairs people than than I did and has been um, amazing in, in kind of opening the door for me to go and have those conversations with people. And presumably, obviously, the frame, therefore, is about people who want to take that top job eventually and, and investing in themselves to to get there. But you, you used the example earlier about when you had the Cadbury's role that perhaps you weren't or didn't feel you had quite the experience. Can you do it when you have the top job? Can you kind of create that extra experience by going through a process like this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and I think um, the profession is always developing. The requirements continue to get more and more 
um, serious um, for corporate affairs directors. So I think anybody who thinks I'm kind of the finished article probably, you know, needs to have a bit of self-reflection um, uh, about that. Um, there is, there's always the new challenge. There's always the new, you know, each CEO I've ever worked with has approached things from a different point of view and 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 given me you know a new way of thinking about what it is that needs to be to be done um and so you know i i think that this is something where you're you're basically saying actually you know the this, the profession is developing we need to keep developing the world is just throwing you know bigger and hairier mm. problems at organizations and in order to be a function that can uh, respond to that you yourself need to constantly be thinking about what that takes. And you also need to um, be throwing that challenge down into your organization as well. Not everybody will want to be a corporate affairs director, but actually everybody can be a corporate affairs leader. And it always surprises me that of, of all functions, I think we're probably the one where people do introduce themselves by their current mm -hmm. job title or specialism. So people will say, I'm in internal comms and say full stop. You know, like I, I'm in, I do public affairs full stop rather than I'm part of the corporate affairs team. I'm working in public affairs. And if you think about other functions, they do tend to see that professional identity as being more than the bit of finance or legal or HR even, that, that, that they are currently in. And I think we would all do better by being more corporate affairian. I'm aware this is not a term that is widely used, but uh, I'm definitely on a mission to- You've coined it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I've coined it, but like, turn it into, yeah, an adjective. One thing I did want to ask you about, I'm, I'm quite struck when you look at, you know, if you take the FTSE 100 versus the FTSE 250, the amount of people who are involved in a comms or corporate affairs team differs wildly. Um, what makes, what's a good size for a, of a corporate affairs team? One of the things that we do do within the Ithaca Centre is help people benchmark. So, um, uh, and again, we, we talk about it as a starting point, a jumping off point for a conversation about whether or not your function is right sized um, versus actually just because an organi another organisation is, is doing it like this, that's how you should do it. One of one of the things in setting up the Ithaca Centre was that actually it would be really useful to have somewhere where the only function that we think about is corporate affairs. We're connected into all of the corporate affairs um, teams. And therefore, if you want to get not just data, but also insight into how you might design an organisation that's going to be right for, for your business, um, hopefully we would we would be the natural people that you would want to to play with. And I think, you know, one of our values is to be quite pragmatic. You know, I've been in um, in organizations when I when I when I was at Cadbury, when I I got given setting up the corporate affairs director, corporate affairs function. It had previously been separate. I was made corporate affairs director and I was asked to to do it and and as you know on the one hand I was like yay I've been I've finally been given this job on the other hand they said we need you to make a 20% cost reduction um you know that's part of the case of putting everything together and you know I made some mistakes in in how I did that but being pragmatic and knowing that actually 
an organization does have an envelope that it gives you and how are you best going to use um, the resources that you've that you're being allocated as well as also helping you have some evidence that can help you perhaps push back when uh, when that has been stretched too far. I was, I was going to ask about that, that you talked about change earlier, and presumably that's something whenever you come into a, a new in-house role, there's a temptation that I must make immediate change or do something differently from before. Um, and that might be increasing the kind of the fiefdom or, as you say, perhaps, perhaps reducing mm. it. Are they some of the conversations you have with people to say, how do I get a management team to kind of buy into the change that yeah. I want to make. Yeah, yeah. Navigating that transition point is probably one of the the kind of the critical things. And as I say, I've made m- many mistakes over the years at the various times that I've done it. Sometimes it's your navigation point. You know, you're going into an organization or you're being asked to take on a new responsibility. Sometimes it's a new CEO. A change of CEO will, will lead to a change of operating model, um, for the organisation that you need to um, you need to adapt to as well, um, and again, I don't think there's a one size that fits all about what the answer is. I do think that there are um, some things about how you do that, which is um, sometimes about being a bit more patient than you might want to be. You know, you might kind of quite quickly reach some conclusions, and quite often corporate affairs people can put themselves under a bit of pressure to try and solve it in the first month when actually if they just wait three months and have kind of done a bit more of the groundwork of understanding the organisation, actually people will listen to them in a different way. Um, Other times, you know, it will be you're going to need to kind of get on with this quickly because you've got an organisation that has almost already decided and you've been hired because they want this to be delivered. So then it, you know, you're much more in that, how do I deliver this in a way which is not going to, um, you know, kind of, you know, I'm doing it with imperfect information. I'm doing it, you know, knowing that I may well need to kind of come back to this in 12 months time um, and and revisit some of the, of the, the things that the organization has asked me to do because, now is not going to be the time to mm. to have that have that debate as i say when i was at sainsbury's i didn't have all of the parts of of the organization there were some parts that came to me quite quickly um once i'd you know demonstrated results in the the core piece that needed sorting out um, and then there were other parts that you know that didn't i was there for for, for three years maybe they would have come later um but i i kind of moved on but but making sure that you've kind of you've got that wider view of what it is that you're you know you're going to try to achieve whilst at the same time thinking you know i just need to make sure that this is working for the organization first and foremost um is there a role for the corporate affairs director in in potentially working with a leadership team and trying to get them to coalesce around a particular idea uh, or a knotty problem and actually subtly talk to people on in individual chats and then report back to the, the chief executive. Have you had experience of having to play that play that role? Definitely, both explicitly and implicitly, I would say. So um, so sometimes you're right, you know, the CEO may well ask you uh, to be to play the role of sort of honest broker, you know, quite often on um, on business issues, you might be somebody who really doesn't have an axe to grind. You're probably not trying to get to be the next CEO and you might have you know people who are running different commercial parts of the business 
who perhaps have a bit more, you know, kind of, uh, you know, red meat competition going on between them. And, and you can kind of play the role of actually understanding each of their perspectives, doing that synthesis piece that I was describing, that the intellectual agility and the EQ coming together to sort of say, well, actually, I can see a way forward for the organisation that perhaps others haven't because they they have kind of adopted a position or they are tied more to, um, you know, delivery of the thing that they are mm. accountable for, whereas we do tend to be accountable for the whole in the same way that the, the CEO is. Um, I've also done it implicitly, like nobody's asked me to do it, but you see it and you see that it is, you know, it's almost like either an, an unconscious or an unspoken about barrier within the organisation um, and you can play a role in that. Um, I think there's a kind of care that you need to apply in that. So, um, you know, for people not to see you as the, you know, the bag carrier of the CEO, you know, I think sometimes we can, I know I, you know, had this problem at various points in my career where perhaps I had got overexcited about what the CEO wanted to achieve, overexcited about, you know, my loyalty to the CEO and actually needing to kind of slightly step back from that a little bit so that people did see me as having loyalty to the interests of the organisation and actually that I would be loyal to them and I would I was somebody that they could trust with telling me what it was that they were worrying about and what it was that they wanted to achieve and know that that wasn't necessarily all going to go back to to the CEO and you know it was you know it was just a backdoor to the CEO I think actually being a place of counsel and trust in and out of yourself and sort of trusting that that's actually the value that you can add. It's not just about using the CEO's authority on their on their behalf. So in your long and storied career, um, you must have had some quite influential mentors. Who, who have they who have they been? Well, um, I mean, Jack Straw was um, was an amazing kind of first boss and um, there was a piece of advice that he kind of gave me quite early on so you know he at the point at that point I think he'd been an MP for 17 years he'd previously been a special advisor in government to Barbara Castle Um, I was you know a sort of politics student who'd who turned up and you know could not believe that I was you know working for, uh, for for this guy and he gave me a piece of advice, which was when I ask for your opinion, I want to know what you think. And if I just wanted to hear, yes, Jack, I could employ an answer machine, which probably dates me a bit by the fact that many young people will be like, what's an answer machine? <laughs> um, but, you know, he sort of said that would be much more effective and efficient. I could press a button and it would say, yes, Jack. Um, so I always want to hear what you've got to say. I won't necessarily always do what you think I should do, but I'll always try and explain it. If I don't, you know, let me know. And that's something that I've always um, kind of tried to keep with me. The second person I would probably reference is um, the personnel director for Cadbury Trebor Bassett, which was the UK arm of Cadbury Schweppes. 
um, who uh, was the what would be the people director, chief people officer for that business, and who was somebody who was very he was actually quite suspicious of anybody who did a group job that you know in HQ he thought we all just sort of sat around drinking gin and tonics in Berkeley Square and didn't really kind of get what it was like at the coal face or the cocoa face um, in terms of actual delivery and he was somebody who um, was very skeptical I think when he first met me uh, you know, Does this he have per- a name, this person? <laughs> yeah, Keith Dennis. And I, I still talk to him on a very regular basis. And he always was somebody who was very grounding um, and, and very supportive. But he was the person because, as I said, when I joined, I thought, oh, my God, I've kind of missed out on a whole bunch of commercial skills. And I thought, do I need to go and do an MBA? And he said to me, well, you could go off and do an MBA or you could look around your self and see that you are in an MBA and actually there are many people in this business who could teach all the modules of an MBA that you would like to go and learn about and actually what you need to do is like build your own MBA and so um, out of that I basically sort of set myself the task of um, you know finding someone in sales who could explain sales to me finding people in supply chain who would talk to me a little bit about that and and kind of following my interest outside of the world of corporate affairs and into the organization and as I said I I did actually end up sort of going beyond the academic if you like um, tell me about it to to actually going and spending about three years in in innovation and I I never regretted it it's always been something that um, I kind of thought was was an amazing thing to to have done. And in your time in innovation, did you come up with some amazing new product? Yes. So um, I'm that we are still eating or yes, drinking or enjoying yeah, yeah. to this day. Yeah. So in fact, um, the natural confectionery company was an acquisition. I, I can't claim credit for it, but uh, it was certainly part of the team that rolled out um, the the acquisition and then and then the rollout. I um, I worked on the launch of Centerfield chewing gum. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> And um, I, I also, um, you know, kind of more seriously, when I went back to the corporate centre, I went back into a corporate responsibility role um, that by this point was um, was more senior. It was much more kind of shaped than than the kind of side accountabilities that I'd had for it the first time round. And I was able to use the experience that I'd had in um, in innovation and sort of seeing what it took to get multiple markets behind an idea and, and behind change to um, get the organization to shift to fair trade and to do that um, in a multi-year staged way, something that I had always thought would be a good thing to do, but I did not have either the credibility internally or indeed the knowledge internally to know how to sh- how to help the organization piece its way through figuring out a change like that now clearly that's a you know a kind of clear example of something where there was corporate affairs capability in that you know my ability to work with stakeholders like the fair trade organization themselves who weren't necessarily looking for you know a multinational to um, 
you know, to to bring into their movement. It was quite early on yeah. um, in the in the days when they didn't have um, a lot of, if you like, kind of traditional brands that had come into the fair trade family, um, as well as dealing with the fact that you know we could launch it because of the you know the practicalities of access to supply. Yeah. We could only launch it in a certain number of countries at a time, and we needed to help countries that weren't going to get it immediately figure out how to get it. So, uh, yeah. Yes, so I can imagine people in the supply chain <laughs> having kittens when you came to them and said, actually, I've got this great idea. Yeah, yeah. So, and there was, you know, a lot of, you know, campaigning, yeah. influencing inside yeah, the organization. Exactly. So, that, that, I can imagine that. One of the supply chain people that I worked with who became a huge advocate of what we were doing. You know, he had spent 26 years understanding, you know, and putting forward all the reasons why it couldn't possibly work. So I was asking him to put his entire, you know, not just belief system, but, you know, his experience, you know, his kind of known experience of what fair trade, you know, um, could or couldn't do um, uh, to one side. So, you know, I still, you know, consider that to be one of my kind of career highlights and something that yeah. I'm very proud of. I definitely can't claim to be the only person who is involved sure. in that as well. So, you know. But that presumably is an example of a sort of reputation innovation by getting free trade on board that has been good for the business, has it not? Yeah. In terms of the consumer's view of the brand or the brands that have been involved in that, that presumably has been uh, supportive of the commercial Objectives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and as I say, in the kind of the the business element of the Ethica leadership frame has commerciality, challenge, yeah. and change as the three elements, and I really see them as a sort of triumvirate that work together. And I think the fair trade example is a great example of I needed to understand not just the the cost of doing it, but also the supply chain practicalities of doing it. The the, the rollout practicalities of, you know, which markets, which brands, um, all of that side of things. I also needed to be able to challenge the organization to think differently and then bring about change. Also knowing that fundamentally we need to do this because, yes, we're, we're taking a kind of reputational issue that had been um, in the sector for a long time and, and now turning it into a reputational opportunity for the organization mm. fascinating um you've talked about the best advice that you were given by jack straw um what do you say to young people now who are looking to build a career in corporate affairs and, and, and want to get up the ladder what's what's the best advice you give so i think um first of all see corporate affairs for its totality and um i, th- I think i've always already referenced like don't be fooled by the sort of slightly boring nature of the job title but actually um it's the totality that is where the magic lies and then we have talked about crisis a lot i i do remain somebody who sort of says when you see something going wrong actually being somebody who is willing to sort of both um point that out constructively and you know with a degree of um Diplomacy. Diplomacy, humility, all the, all of those good things, um, but but nevertheless, not to just sort of you know hope someone else has noticed it, um, but to kind of and, and get involved, you know, roll your sleeves up, get involved, and um, as long as you were doing it with the you know with the kind of the best interests at play, 
versus self-interest, I think generally people will, you know, will reward you with um, with sort of seeing you as somebody who is useful to have beyond your your job description, your current job description. Um, and the final question, which I think all guests um, get posed, is if you hadn't been in corporate affairs, what would your dream job be? Oh well, I've always sort of, I mean, I've always sort of said I would love to be. Um, the communications or corporate affairs person for the for the prime minister. Um, you know, I you asked me, Damien, whether or not or I miss. Job. Uh, impossible yeah, job. Dr- impossible job, dream job, um, um, and uh, I'm not going to get um, you know political with a um, a capital P and and talk about which particular leader, etc. But um, you know, I've I've I guess it's the it's the ultimate corporate affairs job in in many ways that you can you can have that same role as somebody who can be a place of counsel, connection, insight, um, and support to somebody who's dealing with the biggest um, you know kind of questions and decisions. I mean, I have to say, the world of politics is hugely flawed and definitely needs a good HR clear up and and sorting out its org design um, before you would be willing to do it and uh, and yeah I think I'd I'd probably get divorced by my wife and never see my children yeah. so um, you know that has always been you know kind of one of the the things for me about why I've I've not done it. Alex thank you for the conversation today and the chance to discuss your insights and hear about the Ithaca Centre. Um, you've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with myself, Damien Rees, and my co-host today, Jeremy Durant. Jeremy, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Our guest today has been Alex Cole, leader of the Ithaca Centre and Our time with Alex today sadly wraps up Series 2, I think, Jeremy, does it not? It does. Series 2 of Spin on Spun um, has completed. You can find all our previous episodes, however, happily, from both Series 1 and 2 at instinctive.com or wherever you find your podcasts, usually. And, of course, we're on social media, too. And if you'd like to get in touch about future episodes of Spin on Spun, just drop me a line, damien.reese at instinctive.com. Thank you.